welcome to Top Class, the OECD's education podcast. My name's Henry and I work in the OECD's Directorate for Education and Skills. Humans have always been innovators. Innovation is how society got to where it is today, but innovation in education is how society is going to get to where it needs to go tomorrow. And of course, it will be teachers who are going to be at the forefront of that innovation. But what does innovation really mean for education? What does it look like? Well, to discuss the issue, I managed to catch up by phone with Stephen Farr, Director of Classroom Leadership at Teach for All, and Noemi Ladonne, who is an analyst in the OECD's Teaching and Learning International Survey, which is also known as TALIS. So take a listen to what they said, and I'll catch up with you again at the end. So Stephen, thanks for joining. Thank you, Henry. Glad to be here. And Noemi, thanks for coming down as well. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about innovation, but I think when people think about innovation, they're, they're thinking technology, they're thinking more in, I don't know, maybe the business sector or in the market. I'm not sure how many people think about innovation in teaching. So I guess my first question, and I'll put this to Noemi first, is what do we mean by innovation in teaching? Well, rapidly changing societies and technology have led to uh, frequent calls for innovation in education, but it's true that it's not clear how to define innovation. At the OECD, in our recent uh, TALIS reports, we have defined uh, innovation as a new idea or further development of an exist existing product uh, or process or methods. Um, which is applied in a specific context with the intention to create uh, value uh, added. Uh, in, innovation in teaching is, uh, is a problem-solving process rooted in, uh, in teachers' professionalism, and it's a normal response to address uh, the daily changes of constantly uh, changing classrooms. And just for listeners, Noemi is referring to the Teaching and Learning International Survey, which is a OECD review of uh, the teaching profession. Stephen, what would be an example of particularly effective, innovative teaching that you have seen? We, we come at that question of innovation broadly first. So I, I want to I I answer that question. But first, I feel like I have to give a little bit of a context for why my answer is coming from a certain direction. Right? Te Teach for All is in 50 countries around the world. These are, these are non-governmental organizations that are working for uh, education equity for all children. Innovation for us is things that these incredible teachers are doing that are simultaneously changing outcomes for students and changing the systems that they're in, right? So I just want to be sure I make clear that, that when you ask that, Henry, about what's some incredible innovations, I think there's a lot of them. Um, but that's the lens through which we think about these. So some examples um, are dramatically different ways of employing student ownership and leadership in the classroom, right? When we, when we study classrooms that seem to be transformational in terms of students coming in on one path and just leaving on a different path, and, and most of these classrooms are in marginalized lens underserved communities, when we study those classrooms across cultural contexts, we see real patterns, one of which is 
these teachers and students pursuing broader outcomes than most of us tend to ask for, right? Than most, whatever your governments or universities are mapping. And, and what we see over and over is teachers saying, student agency, it matters. That is, that is an outcome for me right there next to reading, writing, and math. Students' awareness of themselves and the social political context of going into it, that's a student outcome that's right there. So I think that's an innovation. That's an example of ways that, frankly, I think that we can all learn from the strongest classrooms in contexts that are pretty challenging around the world. Yeah. Noemi, as someone who works on the Teaching and Learning International Survey, I, I guess you could be said to have, you have the view from above of teaching. Uh, worldwide. So what practices do teachers rely on most when they're in the classroom? I mean, we know that not every classroom is innovative right now. Uh, yeah, what are they relying on? So results from uh, Thales shows that uh, show that teachers rely a lot on traditional teaching practices, such as presenting a summary of recently learned content, or referring to a problem from everyday life or work to demonstrate that why new knowledge is useful. Um, they also let students practice similar tasks until they know that every student has understood the, the subject matter. So those are the repetitive practices that teachers uh, put in place in the classroom, like uh, around 70% uh, uh, of teachers across these countries report that they engage frequently in these types of, uh, in this type of practices. Um, now we also know that less than one out of two teachers frequently use uh, student-centered uh, practices. For instance, uh, having students work in small groups to come up with a joint solution to a problem or task, uh, or giving different work to the students who have difficulties learning uh, and to those who can advance faster. And we know also from, uh, from Thales that uh, about one out of three teachers report that they frequently have uh, students use ICT for projects or classwork. So we, they use a wide range of practices, but with different uh, frequency. And, and we know that the, most, the more innovative practices are less often put in place. And, uh, and so that's, that's also a trend that we are trying to monitor through uh, the TALIS uh, instruments to see how this uh, changes over time. Stephen, you mentioned student agency as being, you said it was on par of reading and writing for you, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Noemi, when you say student-centered practices, is that the same thing as student agency? Is that, uh, is that, I guess, getting students to take ownership of what they're learning? Is that the kind of practices you're referring to? Yeah, well, I think uh, th that's one aspect. I think in Thales, we also try to look at um, whether students uh, are actively yeah, taking part, uh, taking an active part in the learning process and also being cognitively uh, activated. The, we have a term for that, cognitive activation. It refers to problem solving. So really uh, making sure that students are uh, exposed to tasks that have no obvious solution, that they really need to think by themselves. And uh, so they are definitely related concepts. The idea is to... Uh, move away from a very uh, teacher-centered approach where the student is passive to, uh, to, uh, to a more active approach where the student is really at the center of the learning process. And so th this is a, probably a broader term where uh, you can use different techniques. And, uh, and our report, the PISA, PISA report, but also Thales report shows that actually 
having this um, problem-solving approaches, so letting students solve uh, a complex problem by themselves, finding different solutions to, uh, to solve a problem, helping them to think critically is quite conducive of uh, students' learning, and so that's very promising. And uh, we should encourage teachers to use those techniques more and more and train them to do so, et cetera, et cetera. I guess getting teachers to use those techniques might be half the battle. Stephen, in your experience, are teachers open to innovation? Absolutely, right? Teachers are, uh, in my experience, teachers are working hard and looking for ways to have more impact and grow you know, and, and I think, if anything, we build systems that that tend to devalue their innovative tendencies. Um, I don't think it's just that they're looking for innovation. I think they're innovators. In re- and, and um, you know, I, we, we work so much. I appreciate Talis and I appreciate the, you know, we, we've got these lists of what teacher actions really work to get certain results. In most cases, those results are academic and that's wonderful and nothing I'm saying diminishes that. I also think that when we study teachers who are working with children in some of the most challenging contexts we can imagine, right? They are saying, you know, my kids have got to read and write and they have got to see themselves as solvers of problems and they've got to see themselves as able to to navigate systems that may be unfair to them. And when we broaden outcomes to include those kinds of aims, some of the teacher techniques that we want to support have to change too. And I think that's that's the space where, you know, when you when you ask whether teachers want innovation, that's that's the space I'm finding most exciting, studying these teachers around the world, is people who are saying, you know, yes, I am using this form of collective learning. I'm using these forms of lesson plans because I know it's proven to increase my students' reading and writing. But when I don't just think of student ownership as a path to reading and writing, but think of it as an ends itself, that I like what I value in addition is my students being problem solvers. That's an outcome. I have to innovate and maybe teach differently than my school is asking me to or my university is teaching me to. And that's where I think we need to pay attention because there is so much wisdom. There's so many insights coming out of classrooms from students and families and educators who are working in in classrooms and systems that, to be honest, weren't built with them in mind. They, you know, they weren't built with us in mind. They weren't built with this future in mind. And those innovations at that space, what, what does it take to prepare kids for the future that we have in front of us? I think we don't listen to teachers enough on that point. Do you, in your experience, would you say that the teachers themselves have recognized that there is this need to develop and, and change things for the, or change the way the system is run for the future but perhaps the systems themselves, so maybe a few uh, levels higher up, they uh, may be a little bit slow on the uptake. Have you experienced something like that? You know, we're speaking in broad generalizations, right? There's millions of teachers. Some are stronger than others. There's, there's all kinds of contexts. I will say that what we do in the Global Learning Lab at Teach for All's Global Learning Lab is seek out exceptional teachers in some 
of the most marginalized and underserved communities. What are they doing? And I think if you put those teachers in a room and study them, which we've actually done, what you just said is absolutely true. Those teachers are saying, my experience here is telling me my kids need X, but my Ministry of Education is insisting I do Y. What do I do with that moment, right? And I think that for us, we're, we're just trying to create a learning space where teachers can learn from each other on those innovations that are at the edges of our systems, because personally and professionally, and I don't need to suggest that you all disagree with me but or agree with me, I, I think if we perfect the systems we have, in some ways we're perpetuating some of the inequities that we have. And, and classrooms and schools, we're going to have to think of pretty differently. And I think the best source for that is educators, is teachers. Mm. Uh, just to back on the system level of things on, on let's say, the ministries of education, uh, it was pointed out in a recent uh, Times Education Supplement article that in England, for example, schools feel that workload and funding issues are stopping them from taking risks in their teaching. And, you know, by extension, that's hindering innovation. Um, do you think, knowing me first, do you think this is a common complaint? Is this something you've heard before? And in fact, are there other barriers to innovation that systems need to overcome? And I might be bold and ask, maybe you could venture some suggestions for overcoming them? Well, yeah, the issue of time is uh, is definitely one issue for innovation to to strive and for for teachers to uh, to try out new methods and new ideas. We know from the daily survey, for instance, that teachers report working between thirty five and forty hours a week, depending on the country on average, and also on average, I think it's thirty nine hours uh, across the OECD countries. Um, but we know that they they also spend half of this time in the classroom. Uh, so it leaves them with 20 hours to do other things, which includes administrative work, uh, also uh, meeting with students and colleagues, and so uh, and a few hours actually to prepare their lessons, to also speak with their colleagues. And so maybe uh, there, are, there are some um, measures that can be taken to support them in making some time free for actually designing uh, new ideas, new methodologies, trying them out in the classroom and so on. We know, for instance, that time is an issue when it comes to participating in professional development activities. When we ask teachers what was uh, the obstacle, what was the reason why you couldn't participate in a professional development activity, they reported time as an issue, uh, so workload, obviously, sometimes also cost. You mentioned the issue of funding. And uh, so those are barriers uh, to participation in, I mean, in training, in the, uh, so to get some support to uh, develop their, their, their new ideas, to innovate, that uh, education systems should try to uh, lift. And uh, indeed, yeah, I believe that if uh, teachers have uh, more flexibility in their work schedule, uh, they could definitely find uh, probably more opportunities to uh, to innovate. Yeah, I mean, we we see in here very similar barriers, right? And I experienced it myself as a classroom teacher, funding, time, all of that. I also think that there's a, I know sometimes we use words like culture, whatever, and it feels fuzzy, but... I, in so many systems around the world that I've 
you know, had the privilege, honor to work around. I think there's a there's a lack of appreciation for teachers' autonomy and innovativeness. There's there's kind of a built assumptions that we need to we we need to <laughs> tell teachers what to do, and I believe we need to give teachers tons and tons of support. But but the lack of learning communities and ecosystems among teachers about what they're doing well, what they can learn from each other, what we can learn from them, I think is a genuine barrier. Because again, I, I, I'm talking about studying a, a select group of teachers in particular contexts, but they have so much in common. If, if, if I could take you all to the most transformational teacher I've visited in Pakistan and rural Mexico and Baltimore and Nepal, you know, at first they look so different from cultural context, but when we start to look at them, they are doing things very similar to each other in terms of their relationships with students and families, in terms of their putting purpose, like the question of what what is the purpose of education at the center of their work, in terms of how they engage with content. There's all these patterns, and in some cases, those patterns are running in some tension with the systems around them and what's expected of them. And I think that's that's just an important space. So I think it's I think a, one barrier is how we think of teachers in terms of their autonomy and their the, their potential as a source of innovation. I completely agree with you, uh, Stephen, uh, about the the, the 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 importance of autonomy. Uh, we know also from uh, analysis on Thales, uh, Thales data that there is a positive relationship between uh, teachers' autonomy in their work and uh, their job satisfaction, but also their level of self-efficacy. And I think if they feel confidence in their teaching, they will also feel confidence in their capacity to innovate, and uh, so I completely agree with your points that uh, uh, schools and education systems need to find ways to uh, provide this freedom, this autonomy that uh, teachers need to uh, to be uh, to, to innovate in their classroom. So uh, I, I can only second what you what you just said. If I can add to to that, you no, know, I mean I know like we I'm sure like the overlaps of what we're finding are large, I know. Um, your your second question, Henry, about like, what do we do about that? I, I think it's, it's, there are no simple answers at all, of course, but bringing teachers together to learn from each other is so powerful. Um, we I've been through a couple rounds. We have this thing called the Global Teaching Summit, where we bring some of the strongest teachers from these partner organizations all around the world together in one room. And inevitably we design the learning and we have our professional development plans and we, you know, we want to help build these skills. And the feedback we get from these teachers is the most valuable part of this was just not feeling alone, was, was being part of a community of people who are student-centered and focused and who are thinking sometimes about what they need to do differently from what they're being asked. Um, and that's, I, I think, sort of creating those spaces where teachers can learn from each other is, is critical to this. So thank you again to Stephen and Noemi for joining us. And if you want to find out more about the Teaching and Learning International Survey, or TALIS, that Noemi was talking about, 
you can go to www.oecd.org forward slash education forward slash TALIS, T-A-L-I-S. Thanks again for listening, everybody, and until next time.